that the pastor of this congregation might have read uh, to them. And over and over again, you hear these exhortations to not fall away and to come all the way to Christ. Don't hide out in between this sort of half in, half out, straddle the fence. I I, I think this Jesus thing works well, but I'm not quite sure. Maybe I ought to go back to being Jewish. He's saying, no, whatever your profession has been, whether you're a genuine Christian, whether you're a professing Christian who's not really a Christian, whether you're a Jew, a Jew and you, you know, you, you're just kind of hanging out with the rest, come all the way to Christ. Don't go back. Don't turn back. Don't fall away into a religious system that cannot save you. Uh, the law cannot make anything perfect, he'll say later in chapter 7. The law can only show us the standard of righteousness, but it can't give us the power to obey. And so, the, and therefore, it discovers to us our sin and points us to the only one who has obeyed the law, who has performed righteousness perfectly, and calls us to trust in his obedience, in his works, not at all in our own. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So our text this morning is Hebrews 3, 12 to 14, where the writer says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This concept of falling away uh, from the living God, that's a, that's a, a, a definition of the term apostasy. Some of you will have heard that word before. Apostasy means literally to fall away. And, it, and it's the idea of somebody who is, who is uh, outwardly, Christian, who look, you look at him, you look at his, the, the rigor of his life, you look at, you listen to his, his speech, and you say, okay, that person believes in Jesus. He says he believes in Jesus. He says he's a Christian. And then, at some point later on, he falls away from the living God, having been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And apostasy is an ever-present threat. It's an, it's an ever-present danger to the church of God. I wonder if as you walked into Grace Church this morning, if you thought to yourself that you were in danger, that there was a present danger, a danger not only from, well, crossing the street, make sure I don't get hit by a car, a danger not only because of this uh, virus that's uh, been around and maybe I could catch it. Danger not only from the county and the state trying to, to shut us down and pursue legal action. Danger not only from tripping and falling in this wasteland that we're in. Uh, but danger of the deceitfulness of sin that hardens the heart of the professing Christian imperceptibly, moment by moment. And and apostasy is the most serious, severe, and terrifying and heartbreaking reality that the people of God really ever have to grapple with. That someone who is amongst the fellowship of the Lord's people, who is a member of the church, who professes with his mouth to love and trust in Jesus, 
who seems engaged in the battle against sin, who feels guilty about sin, and who says, oh, you know, I ought to do better. I ought to fight that. I got to stop that. Someone who reads his Bible and, and prays and even evangelizes, even tells other people about how to be saved. Such a one can suddenly, at least seemingly suddenly, seemingly without warning, totally renounce his faith in Christ and fall away from the living God. Now, if you're listening carefully, you're saying, wait a minute, are you saying it's possible to lose my salvation? Are you saying it's possible to lose my salvation? No, I'm not saying that. John chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus takes it as a personal responsibility as the shepherd of the sheep to, once the father has given those sheep to him, to lose none of them. And so it would be a blight on the character of the shepherd if he were to lose any one sheep. He says, I lose nothing. Uh, John 10, 27 says the same thing. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. Not temporary eternal life, not eternal life for a little while, eternal life to them. And he says, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given to me, given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. You can't get them from me. You can't get them from the father. Both of us are concerned to, to hold on to these sheep. So people say, okay, well, sure, nobody can snatch Christians out of the Father's hand, out of the shepherd's hand, but, but certain sheep can jump out of his hand, right? We, don't, we can't, nothing outside of us can take us away, but we ourselves, we can decide we're not following Jesus anymore. But that's nonsense. We are not greater than the Father, we are not greater than the sun. We cannot loosen the iron grip of God's love upon us. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, that great climax, that wonderful chapter of the blessings of the Christian who, who lives in the spirit in this new covenant era, that neither death nor life Angels nor principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, and then he says, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, I mean, he covers the gambit of human experience. Nothing can separate us. And then after he lists this, this list of impossible things, I mean, like angels, angels can get you out of Christ's grip. And then he says, nor any other created thing. And so to the person who says, well, we can't be snatched out, but we can jump out. I ask you, are you a created thing? Are you created? Well, then you're in the list of the things that can't separate us from Christ. Even you cannot separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. 
So you say, okay, well, if I can't lose my salvation, how is it that you can warn us against apostasy? I mean, isn't that an empty, hollow warning? If I'm a Christian and I can't lose my salvation and I can't fall away, why in the world are you warning me? Why is the author of Hebrews warning the the, the Hebrew Christians to not fall away? And the answer is that those who do fall away were never genuinely saved to begin with. That's the answer that Scripture gives. 1 John 2.19 is a verse that you ought to have at your fingertips as you think about this and as you enter this discussion of the perseverance of the saints or of eternal security. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Here were people who were within the fellowship, within the visible church, who were not of us. Say, what do you mean not of us? I, I'm a member. I join. I can show you my baptism date. I, I you know, read my testimony in the, in the baptistry and evening service. You can look at my name on the rolls. I get the offering envelopes. What do you mean I'm not of you? Well, because what it means to be of the people of God has very little to do with where your name appears on a list or what rituals you performed. It has everything to do with whether you know Christ, with whether Christ is genuinely dwelling in your hearts through faith, whether the Spirit is in you. And there are people who are among us, maybe people in this room, who, in whom... There is, as our text says, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You may not be falling away now. You may not fall away tomorrow. But if you're outside of Christ, your heart is in the process of falling away. Church members, as I said before, Bible readers, compassionate servants, even evangelists who are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and eventually renounce faith in the Son of God and prove themselves to never have been believers in the first place. And sometimes that slide is long. Sometimes it's, I'm calling myself a Christian for a long time. I'm professing faith in Jesus, and yet my life outwardly, my life, as I quiet myself and get honest with myself inwardly, does not match that profession. I start to tolerate things that I know the scriptures tell me a Christian doesn't tolerate. I start to become entertained by things that a Christian, or the Bible tells me that a Christian ought to hate and be repulsed by. I start to leave off duties. I start to become, uh, you know, nonplussed at Bible reading. I start to become uh, not just sort of bored with prayer. Uh, I, I start to think, you know what? They keep putting this in these rooms where our feet stick to the ground. I don't know if I'm coming to grace life. Um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, is it really wrong to tell two consenting adults that they ought not to, to be with one another if they love one another? I mean, is it really right to tell that uh, tell a woman that she can't do what she wills with her own body uh you know shouldn't shouldn't there be and there's a million different things on this long slide to apostasy even while you call yourself a christian and the end of it 
is that you fall away from the living God. You know, it's, I was talking to somebody about this over the, over the last weekend where, you know, somebody, usually somebody who's young, uh, certainly young in the faith, um, would come, would come to us and say, you know, I'm really starting to have doubts. If it's a young man, I'm really starting to have doubts about the truthfulness of Christianity. What's the answer to that? What's her name? Because sin makes provision for itself that way. My, my intellectual curiosities and dubiousness about the truthfulness of the scriptures or my, my questions about the text transmission of the New Testament as to its reliability, my concerns about how can God be three in one or the historicity of the book of Jonah since we don't have a, external records of the Ninevites re- re- returning or how can it be possible for a man to be in the belly of a fish or for crying out loud, we believe the basis of our faith is the resurrection of a man from the dead. That just seems so in, un, I mean, unbelievable, right? I'm just incredulous at that. What's her name? What, what, what sin has wormed its way into your life so that it's causing you to start questioning the truthfulness of what you know to be true so that you can convince yourself, maybe, really, maybe I really can live the way that my flesh tells me. I want to live. Maybe I ought not to be engaged in this significant battle that, that is painful, that t- takes discipline, that starves me of the immediate gratification of the faux pleasures of sin with the promise of the, the pleasures of fellowship with Christ in one day heaven. People associate with the people of God, but they're not the people of God. There are people who believe they're saved, but who are self-deceived. They make an outward profession of faith. They're members of the church. They study the scriptures. They pray. They gather for corporate worship, but they're not truly born again. They're not truly regenerate. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to those inside the Corinthian church, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. I mean, if Christianity was, if being a Christian meant nothing more than saying, I believe in Jesus, then saying, I believe in Jesus, right? If everybody is a Christian who says he is, why would Paul ever say, test yourselves, examine yourselves? What do you mean examine myself? I signed the card. I got baptized. I prayed the the sinner's prayer. I go to church every Sunday. I vote conservative or progressive as it may be. Because it's possible to make an outward profession of faith and be self-deceived. And, and we, we know that from, you know, that, that famous terrifying passage of Matthew chapter 7, where you have men who are pictured as coming to the Lord Jesus at the end of their life. So they've died and they've, they've gone to judgment. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day. And no, many will say to me on that great day of judgment when they come to stand before the judge of the earth to give an account for their lives. They'll say, Lord, Lord. And they know to call Jesus Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name 
perform many miracles? Didn't we belong to the church? Didn't we exercise spiritual gifts? Didn't we serve you in ministry? Didn't we do it all in your name, not for our glory, but for yours? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. (laughs) What? I mean, imagine being told that by Jesus. Go into that day, Jesus, it's me. It's me. We've walked together for years, for decades. I, I know you. Jesus says, funny, I don't know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. And what's the will of his Father that you believe truly upon the one whom he sent, that you follow after Christ and demonstrate that that faith that you profess that you have is genuine by a life of obedience. You're not saved by that life. Your life does not earn you salvation. Faith is the instrument by which you lay hold of the works of the one who earned salvation. But a life, a changed life, is the evidence that that faith has laid hold of that one and that that one is now in you, transforming you, molding you, shaping you, subduing the lusts of your heart and conforming you into his own image day by day. The parable of the soils teaches us that. You can turn to Matthew chapter 13. Right where Jesus tells this story about their a sower sowing a seed upon multiple kinds of soil, and there's he compares the the many different responses to the gospel to seed sown on a path where it just it goes down and it doesn't sink in at all to rocky soil to thorny soil and to fertile soil. So there's four soils, and only the one produces a genuine crop. Matthew 13, 20 to 22, Jesus says, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. I believe. I'm saved. I love Jesus. I hate sin. I don't, I don't want that life anymore. I, I, I love this. He died for me. Yet, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. There have been those among us, I can say that with confidence, there have been those among us who have been the rocky soil, who have been the thorny soil. These are people who have superficially received the word of God immediately with joy, but along comes affliction or persecution or the cares of the world or the glories of riches, and this once promising plant withers in the heat of the sun. Well, what's her name? Well, I just, I just can't, I just can't give her up. But you know, this is the way that I can make a living, and and I know that it's not the best. But you know, this is come on. I mean, the Lord gave me this talent. He gave me the opportunity. You know, I, I want to do the right thing, but 
I just can't take the heat. I can't take all of this. I might get arrested for going to church. I can't take the ostracism and the jeering and the mocking of my friends and my family. I can't take being told you're not welcome at Thanksgiving dinner. The fellowship of my family is more satisfying than the fellowship of Jesus. And so, in the language of 1 John 2, 19, they go out from us. They abandon the community of the only true gospel and they proved that they were never really of us, that they never had any firm root of salvation to begin with. 1 Corinthians 15.2, Paul calls for perseverance in faith when he says, you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Failing to hold fast the word of the gospel that Paul had preached to them would mean that they had believed in vain, in emptiness, in a way that reveals that their faith was not true faith at all. James chapter two talks about that, that there's such a thing as dead faith, that there is such a thing as demon faith. (coughs) Excuse me, he says, you believe that God is one? Good, God is one. You know who also believes that God is one? Demons believe that God is one. You know who has great theology? Satan has amazing theology because he's been able to study God and his works since the very creation of the world. So you can believe true things about Jesus. You can believe true things about salvation and the afterlife and so on. And your faith can be spurious faith. It can be the faith of demons. It can, be the, it can be dead faith. Why? What does James say? Because the faith that has no works is dead. It's not that you're saved by the works. It's that the faith that you're saved by works. John chapter 2 says, Many believed in Jesus there, but he wasn't entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and he knew what was in a man. He didn't have any need for have anybody else come testify to him about what was in man. It says, They believed in him, and he didn't entrust himself to them. Later, Pastor John has said that is the same word, right? Belief, trust. They had faith, and Jesus didn't have any faith in their faith. Because there's a kind of believing, there's a kind of notional assent that does not lay hold of Christ for righteousness, that isn't real. And so Colossians 1, 22 to 23, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Man, wouldn't it be great if that was the end of the sentence? Listen to that. Bask in that, believer. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Amen. Praise God for the work of Christ. And then there's an if. Then there's an if. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. And then back to our text in Hebrews 3, 14. For we have become partakers of Christ. Praise God. We have a share in Jesus, in the Son of God, in the, in the champion of salvation, in the perfect Israelite, in the obeyer and fulfiller of the law, if we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. 
Say, now, man, that sounds just an awful lot like you're telling me that my salvation depends on my perseverance. Are you saying that that I'm responsible to keep myself saved? Jesus saves me, but I've got to keep myself saved? No. The text doesn't say, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end, we will become partakers of Christ. It doesn't say that. Look at it. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm till the end, we have become partakers of Christ. You see the difference the verb tense makes. If this is true of you, this will have been true of you, right? If this happens now, it means that sometime in the past, something else is true. Our perseverance doesn't, our perseverance in faith till the end doesn't win us salvation, it confirms and evidences that prior to our perseverance, we have truly been granted salvation. Enduring to the end is the evidence that the faith we had was real and not phony because true saving faith perseveres. Phony, spurious faith dwindles away. And so, no, our perseverance doesn't save us, but we won't be saved without persevering. Enduring, persevering faith in the true gospel of Christ is absolutely necessary for salvation. And those who become enamored with false teaching, those who become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and just say, I've got to have my pet sin, I can't let it go, even for Christ, those who entertain notions of abandoning the gospel, they are in danger of committing apostasy, of falling away. And as I said, it's a heartbreaking reality because the consequences are so severe. The writer of Hebrews goes on to speak about the sin of apostasy in chapter 10, verse 26, and he says, if that happens, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you go, if you leave the only sacrifice for sins, there's no sacrifice left. There only remains, he says, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. I mean, that's severe language. You don't like fire and brimstone preaching. You don't like the Bible. Middle of verse 28 of Hebrews 10. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Verse 31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Apostasy is a terrifying reality. Rejection of God, rejection of Christ, rejection of the true gospel, rejection of the life that the gospel demands of you in full knowledge and in full exposure to the truth can only mean a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that consumes God's enemies. And we could wish that the church would never experience this. We could wish that, the, that we would never go through the grief and the sadness of the, and the pain of having one whom we've regarded as a brother or sister in Christ deny Christ and lay themselves open to such a terrifying expectation of judgment. But in the inscrutable wisdom of God, that's not to be so. We do experience this. We do witness apostasy. Some of you are thinking of somebody as I speak about it, a family member, a friend, somebody who's fallen prey to the seduction of sin and of false doctrine and have apostatized from the gospel. You know that pain. 
And when you hear about it, you think, what? I mean, how, how could this happen? Not that one, not that guy, not her. I mean, what, what, when did you start doubting the truth? I mean, how did you get here? And you inevitably think, you know, was there anything that I could have done to prevent this? Could I have had that conversation? Could I have asked that hard question? Could I have refuted some argument? Could I have responded to some book, something, anything that would have guarded my good friend or my dad or my son or my daughter from being taken in and seduced by the deceitfulness of sin and the seduction of false doctrine. And if there was something you knew that you could have done to prevent that, I'd be willing to bet that every last one of you as a genuine follower of Christ would have done whatever it was that needed to be done, short of sin. I mean, even if it were inconvenient, even if it was difficult, even if it disrupted your schedule, even if it made you look foolish, you do it. The world, the flesh, and the devil are in constant pursuit of the affection and the fidelity of you and of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not like Satan says, well, I know that one's really saved, so I'll just let off. No. And here's the key point. The whole reason I go through all of this, one of the ways, so this, the, the immense danger and threat of apostasy is ever present. And one of the ways that we are safeguarded from apostasy is through the ministry of one another to one another in the fellowship of the faith. Look at Hebrews 3.12. He says, I don't want you falling away from the living God. So what do I do? Author of Hebrews. He says, take care, brethren. Be concerned with, be preoccupied with, set your minds on, take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Okay, well, how do, how do I do that? What, what, what's one, at least one way that I can take that care? But encourage one another day after day so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage, parakaleo, can also mean exhort, admonish. Get in each other's face and speak encouraging things. Christ is wonderful. The, the, the blessing of his presence is so sweet. The, the, the ministry and the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart, the consolation and comfort of the Spirit is so comforting. The, the beauty of the, the fellowship with Christ that you get to enjoy in the scriptures, that's so much more enjoyable than the deceitfulness of sin. That's encouraging one another. Don't, don't go after that. Don't go after that illicit relationship. Don't peddle and carry and coddle that sin. Christ is more enjoyable. Heaven brings a sweeter rest. And then not just the encourage, but the exhort part of it. Exhort, like get up next to somebody and say, hey, get back in line. Stop fooling with this stuff. It's too long already, grace life, that you've cherished that sin and not made war against it. It's too long to take fire in the bosom and expect not to be burned. 
It's too long to cherish that false doctrine that you think you're just smarter than everybody else. You've got it figured out. They don't. You'll depart from historic orthodoxy. You'll have your novel view of the Trinity or of the person of Christ or the work of Christ. And you're dancing on the brink of hell. And this text says that the way that you and I are saved from that is when others of you and I come up next to each other and say, get in line. Brother, what are you doing? I can see it. Others can see it. What are you waiting for? Why are you messing around with this fruitless sin that doesn't satisfy? Doctrine that's not true and doesn't give glory and honor to Jesus. You are God's plan to preserve your brothers and sisters in part. You are his appointed means to keep this falling away and being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin from happening to the person sitting next to you. And that is the calling of your life. Whether you're a preacher, a pastor, a professor, a missionary, or none of those things by a mile, the ministry that you've been called to as a Christian is to see that that doesn't happen to the Christians around you. This is what it means to be in fellowship. Fellowship is not a coffee and a donut. (laughs) Fellowship is not like, hey, how are the kids? I mean, that's a part of it. You need to know how things are. Fellowship is, how you doing? What's your Bible reading like? Are you having satisfying, devotional, personal worship times with Christ in the morning? Are you mortifying? What sin are you mortifying? What's the spirit working in you to put off so I can pray for that one thing, so I could ask you about it next week, so I can make sure if I see it that I smack you in the back of the head? (laughs) Hebrews 10 says that terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury fury of the fire, that's the consequences. What's right before Hebrews 10, 26? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is why church is essential. All right, it's not so we can stick it to Newsom. It's not so that we can, you know, whatever, keep our parking lots. Church is essential Because apostasy is real. And you may think that, you know, real church is listening to the sermon, and it is. Because without the sermon, without the skillful teaching of the Word of God, the accurate handling of the Scriptures, there's no real substance to anything. But there are a lot of people who can listen to sermons and go straight to their destruction. Because they don't have somebody in their life saying, did you get that? Did you hear that? Are you making application there? Can you help me make application there? Not high by fellowship. The watchful eye of a brother or sister who feels so invested in our spiritual well-being that they, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, burn with a fierce and godly jealousy when they see us enticed by sin. 
What a gift it is to have brothers and sisters so invested and concerned about our welfare, but who are willing to have difficult conversations and to be thought foolish and to be thought overly earnest and judgmental for the sake of safeguarding our devotion to Christ. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Labor with one another in battling sin. Who is the person you go to when you need to kill sin in your life and you're having a rough time? There ought to be at least one person outside your family who you can call up and say, I need a kick in the teeth, man. Help me. Get in each other's faces, as I said. And then the other side of it, remind one another of the heinousness of sin and the loveliness of Christ. Call one another. Meet with one another outside of the the big meeting. Pray together. Read together. Celebrate grace together. You know, I'm a worm. I'm a sinful man. The sins that I committed yesterday are enough to damn the entire human race. And yet here I stand breathing, preaching the word of God, taking the word of the covenant on my lips, being used by the master, a vessel that's dirty that gets cleaned by being used. That's the testimony of every single one of us. Celebrate that with one another. Isn't Christ precious to you? Don't you see how sinful you are and how much you don't get what you deserve? Remind one another, we need each other. We need each other. We cannot, we cannot. I mean, how ridiculous would it be if we fought for the right to meet as the church on Sundays and then we failed to live as the church day by day, week by week? What does it all mean if we gather together and we're just a show? We don't want to play church from February 6th, 1969. We don't want to play church. That was the first sermon that Pastor John preached here, how to play church and how we're not going to do it. That's what Grace Life is about. That's what fellowship groups are about. That's what Bible studies are about. If you're not in a Bible study, you need to be in one. That's what meeting together outside of here is about. That's what relationships are about. Do you understand that? Relationships are about you killing sin so sin won't kill you. And you need your brothers and sisters' help for that. And God provides the church for that. That's why we do what we do. That's why I care about fellowship groups. That's why we want to give you extended fellowship time so that you could begin to create those relationships that can plow deeper outside of here so that there be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but that you would encourage and exhort one another day after day, as long as it's called today, that you would treasure Christ, hate sin, follow him, put sin to death, and live in a way that he's worthy of being lived for. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would accomplish this in our midst, and we pray that you would seal these words to our heart. Give us to one another, make us for one another. Would we make us faithful to this sacred duty that we have to each other as the people of God? 
so that none here or within the sound of my voice would ever be one who has to say or has to hear those chilling words, depart from me, I never knew you. We, we are convinced of better things concerning you. We are convinced of better things concerning the ones you've, you've gathered here, that, that we would uh, enjoy the sweetness of Christ together, that we have enjoyed the, the great blessings of the, the mortification of sin. We've seen sin conquered in our lives because of your grace. We've seen faithfulness be the result, out of the, the, the great fruit out of the root of genuine uh, God-honoring, saving faith. We pray that you would encourage those who need to be encouraged by the evidences of past grace. Pray that you'd convict those who need to be convicted of the absence of the evidence of present grace. Uh, pray that you would seal to yourself by the testimony of the Holy Spirit by the testimony of a changed life, seal to yourself that which you are worthy of, a people who is not only redeemed from, from lawlessness, but that is purified and zealous for good deeds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.